14. Romans chapter 14. The year was 1776, and the mission was clear. The British must not be allowed to establish military supremacy over the 13 colonies. At whatever cost, General George Washington and his army must harass and hinder the British from taking control of the major cities and the major forts. The Americans fought well and could just drag the war out. Eventually, the British would grow weary and they would agree to independence. But even when people are united in a common mission, there can be disagreement. Uh, One of General Washington's brigadier generals was a young man named Nathaniel Green. He was responsible for the 3,000 American soldiers at Fort Washington on Manhattan Island. Uh, The British General Howe was bringing an army of around 10,000 men against that fort. And so Washington wrote to Green, and he told him that protecting that fort was not worth the loss of 3,000 American soldiers. He told Green he was greatly outnumbered. He urged Green to retreat and to give up the fort before General Howe and the British arrived. Green disagreed. Young and naive, he was convinced that he and his men could hold the fort against the coming British army. Now, Washington could have commanded him to retreat, but he didn't. He urged him to retreat. But he left the final decision with Green. And so going against General Washington's urging, Green's army stayed to fight. And the result? 54 Americans were killed. 100 were wounded. And 2,858 American soldiers were taken captive by the British army. It was a heartbreaking blow to the Americans. Terrible loss. Washington did not try and court-martial Nathaniel Green. He didn't even fire him. He didn't even demote him. Uh, Despite their disagreement, and even despite the results, they continued to work as partners in their great mission. And five years later, it would be General Green who led the southern campaign that decisively turned the tide of the war and led to the American victory at Yorktown. Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Talk to Brad after the service if you want to know more. Mount Hermon, in a local church, we've been given a mission. We're to worship God together. We're to grow as disciples together. We're to seek to reach the lost together. We're to support missionaries together. We're to help each other fulfill the callings that God has given us together. Your callings are going to look different from my callings. Different soldiers have different responsibilities and duties in an army. 
But we have one glorious cause, one great mission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is our joint mission. We also have this reality. Disagreements come up as we undertake this mission together. Christians do not always see eye to eye on issues. Like Washington and Green, we will sometimes assess the situation differently. We will have different ideas about what we should and should not do. So Romans 14 exists to help us know how to navigate loving God and loving one another when there are significant disagreements among us. Now, in these opening verses of Romans 14, Paul is teaching us particularly how to handle the kinds of disagreements that arise between strong and weak Christians. And we've already seen the difference between those two kinds of Christians. In this passage, the strong Christian is the one who understands something that the weak Christian doesn't understand. The strong Christian understands that everything God created is good and that nothing is off limits to us if sanctified by prayer and gratitude. Just as David and his men ate the showbread in the temple to aid them, it wouldn't have been the temple, the tabernacle, okay? uh, to aid them as they fought God's battles. So the strong Christian understands that everything God has made is available to us if we use it wisely to help us on our mission. In other words, the weak Christian wants to create limits where God has not created them. The weak Christian is not a legalist. The weak Christian is genuinely seeking to honor Christ, but the weak Christian holds some wrong convictions. In Romans 14, these weak Christians were convinced that Christians should be vegetarians, that eating meat was off limits. They also argued that Christians must not drink alcohol, even if in moderation. And since meat and wine were part of the everyday life for most first century Roman Christians, this created, created quite a lot of difficulty in this church family. How could these Christians live life together? How could these Christians be on mission together when very basic and fundamental issues were creating disagreement in the church? And so Paul serves the Roman church and he serves our church by giving us some instructions. So look at what he says beginning in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another 
It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now in these verses, Paul seems to be speaking first and foremost to the strong Christian about how to relate to the weak Christian. And we saw in our previous sermon on this that what Paul has in mind here is mainly knowledge. That is, the strong Christian has come to know and understand something that the weak Christian has not yet come to know and understand. It's not a disparaging word to say that the Christian is weak. It just means that that Christian has not yet matured to the same place as that other Christian in that particular realm of understanding, that particular aspect of knowledge. Each person's discipleship journey looks different. Each person's growth in the Christian life looks different. And there will be times when when you have come to understand something in the Bible and you look at your fellow brother or sister in Christ and you recognize they, they haven't seen that yet. It hasn't clicked for them. It's not about age. Sometimes a younger Christian has come to better know and understand the truths of God's word than maybe even a much older Christian who has walked with Jesus longer. And it isn't even just about how many years you've been a Christian, because we don't all spiritually grow at the same rate. We grow at the rate that God gives us by His grace, often in fits and starts, through different trials, through different degrees of suffering. So how should you relate to another Christian When it's clear that you've come to understand something that your fellow believer doesn't yet understand. Especially when it comes to issues of ethics and practical living and the way we live out our lives. Well, we have one overarching positive command. And then we have three negative commands. Instructions about what we must not do. So let's look at these together. So first, the chief overarching command is this. Welcome the weak Christian. Welcome the weak Christian. Receive him. Make a place for him. Accept him. Just because this person doesn't yet know or understand something that you do doesn't change the fact that this is a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ. This is a person who is seeking to follow the Lord. They were a part of your family. They're a soldier in the same army. Don't let the disagreement cause you to miss this reality. Love this person. Receive this person. Welcome this person. Now, this is a command that those who would call themselves Reformed Baptists, as I would, especially need to hear. Because we care a lot about theology. We care a lot about doctrine. We understand that what we believe matters. And we don't want to stay immature in our faith. Fools despise knowledge. Fools despise theology. We we try and go deep here. We we treasure the glorious doctrines of, of the Bible. But if we're not careful... Our growth in knowledge will puff us up rather than humble us. 
Growing in knowledge of God's truth ought to always humble us. If we really understand any truth of the Bible and take it to heart and see God's glory in that truth, the result should always be that we find ourselves having smaller thoughts about ourselves and bigger thoughts about God. We find ourselves feeling littler than than we were before, and He is more glorious to us. But if we don't learn God's truth prayerfully, carefully, with a view towards being made humble, with a view towards being made holy, then that knowledge can become a source of arrogance. We can look down upon people for not knowing and understanding what we know and what we understand. This is why, by the way, that we never pursue knowledge for knowledge's sake alone. We pursue knowledge to serve the cause of holiness. We pursue knowledge to serve the cause of serving Jesus through acts of service. In the same way that you and your uh, callings and in your job may have to pursue knowledge about things, not just because you want to happen to know it, but because it's going to be useful to you so that you can do your job better. So God has called us to fulfill our callings for his glory, and he's called us to be salt and to be light. And we pursue knowledge just not so that we can win Bible jeopardy. We pursue knowledge so that we can be more useful to Christ. So it ought to have a humbling effect. So someone comes into this church and starts talking about how if we really trust Jesus, he'll make sure that we're healthy and he'll make sure that we're wealthy. And you know that isn't true. You know it isn't true. But that, that person that has walked into our church who, who seems to be a true believer who seems to really love Jesus, is also convinced that because of his faith in Jesus, he's going to be healthy and he's going to be wealthy. How are you now going to treat that person? Someone comes into the church and starts talking about how the rapture is going to come and people from all over the world are suddenly going to disappear at the same time, leaving their clothes neatly folded. And you suspect maybe that's not in the Bible. How are you now going to treat that person? Someone says in a Sunday school class or maybe in a Wednesday night meeting that they say, well, God made salvation possible and he opened the door, but we of our own free will have to walk through that door. God would never force somebody to trust him. And you know that's that's not quite right. That's not biblical theology. So how are you now going to respond to that person? Will you neglect that person? Are you going to look down on them as childish and immature? Are you going to write them off, pay them no mind? Will you even suggest that they need to go find another church? Because that's the exact opposite of what this passage calls us to do. Welcome that person. Love that person. Encourage them. Receive them. Accept them. Maybe God has put you in their life to help walk them into greater knowledge and understanding. And frankly, maybe God has brought that person into our church 
Because that person, while they may not know what we want them to know on that point, they have some spiritual gift that we greatly need. Maybe you invite someone to your house for dinner. You start talking about sports. And they say, oh, we don't, we don't watch sports at our house. Okay. So you switch subjects. You start talking about a book you've been reading. Oh, we, we don't read those kinds of books at our house. Okay. So you start talking about music or a movie you've seen or maybe something to do with fashion and, and their response. We, no, we don't do that at our house. You ever had a conversation like that with someone? Maybe you haven't, but in some Christian circles, that happens quite often. These believers, out of a genuine desire to honor Christ, have set all kinds of boundaries in their lives, not ethical or moral boundaries, but boundaries that declare all sorts of technologies, all sorts of gifts from God unclean. And so after they've been at your house, are you going to come talk to the rest of us and say, wow, that family's weird. Are you going to avoid that family in the future? Are you going to decide, ah, we probably won't be inviting them over again? Because what does our command say? Welcome them. Make a place for them in your heart and in your life. Accept them right where they are, with all of their quirks, with all of their oddities. Because frankly, we all have our quirks, don't we? (laughs) And all of us have gaps in our knowledge. All of us have places where we are weak in the faith. And so we are to welcome one another. Perhaps it's helpful to remember that Christ has already welcomed the weak Christian. Christ gave his life for that person, brought that person to faith, and loves that person. And on the last day, that weak Christian will be fully sanctified, fully holy, spiritually strong, with great knowledge, and with great faith. Don't just see a Christian for who they are at this moment. We're all in a process. Remember who Christ is making them to be. Remember that one day we will all reflect his glorious image as we live our lives in perfect holiness in heaven. God has great plans for that Christian. Weak as their faith might be right now. And he has great plans for us. So we should welcome them. So that's the overarching command. How do you treat a Christian who hasn't yet come to understand things that maybe you have? Answer, you welcome them. Receive them, accept them, you love them. Then three negative commands. First, from verse 1, we are not to quarrel over opinions. Welcome the weak Christian, love them, embrace them, have them in your home, have them in your life, but don't let their weakness become a reason for you to quarrel with them. Now, it is absolutely appropriate for you to develop a relationship with them and to talk about God's truth with them. It's absolutely appropriate in the right setting, at the right time, to sit down with them with an open Bible 
and to try to explain to them maybe these things that you've come to understand that they don't yet understand. But you must never quarrel. And if they don't yet agree with you on some issue, it's not your job to ultimately convince them. Sometimes coming to grips with truths in God's word takes time. Give them time. Be patient with them. Pray for them. Trust the Spirit. The best things you could do, see who's not here on Sunday nights. right? Encourage them to be here. Because what's the best way that God matures Christians? Through being here regularly, hearing and receiving the preaching of God's Word. Get them here and pray. God will mature them. In his time. Also, don't feel like you need to bring up that issue every time you see them. Let, Let your relationship with that person be much greater and about a whole lot more than just those issues on which you happen to disagree. Maybe there's someone in this church and they play the lottery every week. And you you're convinced, right? I know from the scriptures, that's, that's not right. You don't need to be doing that. Don't even serve that system. Don't, don't participate in that. You're convinced. You're, you're strong on that. They're weak on that. They shouldn't be doing that. Okay. And maybe you've sat down with that member of our church. And you've shown them reasons in the Bible why, why you're convinced playing the lottery each week is wrong. And they didn't agree. They didn't just immediately walk away and go, you've changed my mind. They're still playing the lottery every week, even after you talk to them. Does that mean every Sunday when you see them, that's what you're going to bring up? Bet you didn't win again, did you? Still paying that stupid tax, aren't you? Every week? Is that helpful? Is that going to show love to them? Is that what welcoming them looks like? Let your relationship with that person be much greater and about a whole lot more than just those issues on which you disagree. Worship together. Serve together. Encourage one another. And by the way, you will find that sometimes you find real encouragement from that person. You can receive a timely word that is just what you need to hear. From the lips of someone who still thinks it's a sin for a woman to wear long pants. So don't quarrel. And don't despise. That's our second command here. Don't despise them. Don't despise them. Verse 3. Verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So... Two Roman Christians sitting side by side at a dinner. This would have happened a lot for them. Remember in the first century, the Lord's Supper was called the love feast. And Christians would bring food and drink from home and share a whole meal together. So the Lord's Supper in the first century was a covered dish dinner. At some point in the feast, they would break the bread and take the the wine as a time of remembering what Christ had done for them on the cross. But that happened within the context of a whole church-wide family meal. So Christians ate together a lot, which is why issues over food proved to be a big deal. So here are two Roman Christians sitting side by side at the love feast. One picks up the dish with the roasted lamb, 
puts a little bit of roasted lamb on his plate, and he passes that dish to his neighbor. The neighbor takes no lamb. In fact, he only puts vegetables on his plate. He is convinced that eating meat dishonors Jesus. Will the Christian who knows that isn't true, and Paul says it isn't true in verse 14, will he despise his weak brother? The word despise here literally means to cast out as nothing. Right? To treat as having no value. Just, just putting that person in the margins of your life. It means as soon as you see your brother acting in this way, you write him off as not worthy of your time, not worthy of your attention. Is there anyone in our church that maybe you've consciously or subconsciously, unconsciously written off as unworthy of your time or unworthy of your attention? Is there anyone in this church family that we're neglecting, that we're despising? And then third, we're told don't judge them. Don't judge them. This is where Paul is going to put a lot of emphasis throughout the remainder of this chapter. In verses 3 and 4, Paul is speaking both to the strong and the weak Christian. He's speaking to the one who looks down on his brother because he eats only vegetables. He's also speaking to the vegetarian who is judging his brother because he eats lamb. And his message to both of them is the same message. Do not pass judgment on one another. Okay, let's be very clear. This command does not mean that you are to refrain from drawing moral conclusions or making moral assessments. When you're talking with your brother or sister in this church and you find out they're holding to a conviction that isn't right, it is perfectly appropriate for you to conclude in your own mind, my brother or sister's wrong about that. Uh, When you see your brother or sister doing something that's wrong, doing something that's off base, it is right for you to recognize that, to discern that. Christians are called to make those assessments. If you don't make those assessments, you won't be able to live a godly life and you won't be able to help anybody. Romans 12, 2, Paul explicitly taught us to be discerning, to test everything according to the word of God. But... Being discerning is very different from being judgmental. What Paul is commanding here is for us to refrain from condemning our brothers or sisters for their convictions and the choices they make. It is not your job to make them feel guilty for their convictions and their choices. It is not your job to put them in their place. So follows Paul's argument here. Verse 4. Verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. In other words, I'm not your general and you're not my general. Christ is the commander of this army. Christ is the general of this army. Christ is the head of this body. 
Though we each have different roles to play, including some roles that do include authority, ultimately we all serve in Christ's army. We are part of Christ's body. We are citizens in Christ's kingdom, and he is the king, and no one else is the king. He is the one who reserves all authority to pass judgment on the last day. So imagine that you're at work tomorrow, and I stop by and visit. And I find you skimping when you should be working. And I say, well, because you're skimping on your work, I'm going to dock your pay by 10% this month. What do you think about that? You think I'm crazy because I'm not your boss. The, the rules that you might be breaking are not my rules, and I have nothing to do with your paycheck. I may not even know what I'm talking about. Maybe what I called skimping is something perfectly allowed or even encouraged in your workplace. Well, so also, it is not right and doesn't make sense for us to judge one another. Declare one another condemned in the house of God. It's not our house. I don't go to your house and discipline your children. And I wouldn't want you to come to my house and discipline my children. Now, you might bring issues to my attention, and you should. The children are misbehaving. But the job of passing judgments, the issuing of punishments or rewards, that belongs to the parents. Well, in this family, the family of God, the job of passing judgment, the job of issuing rewards and discipline, that belongs to Christ and Christ alone. Even church discipline, when it is done right, is not an act of the church itself. It is an act of Christ through the obedience of the church, as the church simply does what Jesus tells it to do. We are called to obey Jesus. It is Jesus who brings church discipline as an act of love through us. But church discipline is reserved for only those times when a person sees that what they're doing is wrong and they will not repent. They are convinced that what they're doing is wrong, but they will not give it up. Church discipline is not to be used for Christians who are simply still growing and have some wrong convictions. You say, but Justin, I just can't leave my brother or sister alone about this issue. I've talked to them about why they are wrong. I've shown them verses in the Bible that are very clear. They just don't seem to get it. I'm worried about them. I'm afraid that if I don't speak seriously or more strongly, if I don't keep bringing this up, there may be serious consequences. Dear friend, I'll say it again. It is not your job to make everything click for them. If you have lovingly talked with them, then you are called to pray and leave them in the hands of God. Look at the end of verse 4. He will be upheld For the Lord is able to make him stand. Remember, we're talking about gospel-believing Christians here. Just because your brother or sister is wrong on certain issues or has some bad ideas, doesn't mean that Christ is not at work in them. 
No error in their thinking or understanding will be too great for Christ to overcome. Christ has set his love on that person. He will make sure they make it safely through to the last day. The same grace that is a rock beneath your feet is a rock beneath theirs. So don't discount the work that Christ is doing in them just because they keep buying those lottery tickets. Now, Paul continues this theme down in verses 10 through 12. So look there. Look down at verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay, so let these realities fall on you from these verses. First, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. This is an appointment that is on all of our calendars. It is an inescapable appointment. I will one day stand before God. And you will one day stand before God. And you do yourself no favors if you try and ignore the fact, if you pretend it's not going to happen. No, wisdom says, be prepared. The day is coming, be prepared. It's wisdom to make sure that you're ready. If you're here this evening, you're not a Christian. This truth especially needs to fall on your mind and your heart. You need to run to Jesus now before it's too late and prepare yourself for your appointment with God. You will stand before the judgment seat. But Christians, we need to recognize that your brothers and sisters have this day ahead for them just like you have it ahead for you. And for believers, there will be no condemnation on this day. No condemnation on the last day. All taken care of at the cross. But there will be a judgment of rewards. We will receive for the life to come based on what we did in faith in this life. We are not saved by works But our works of faith will be assessed on the last day and will play into your future life. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the master who came back from a long trip and then he called his servants to himself. And they were rewarded based on what they had done with what he had entrusted to them. That day's coming for us. The master's coming back. And we will be called to a given account for how we stewarded the gifts and the resources and the talents and the callings that God gave to us. And know that part of that judgment that Christ hands down concerning you will deal with how you treated your brothers and your sisters. And your desire to be right, and your desire to win an argument... And your desire to rush along the work of the Holy Spirit and your brother or sister, is it possible that you're actually doing them harm? 
We'll see later in this passage, it is a dangerous thing to cause your brother or your sister to stumble. We'll show that causing your brother or sister to stumble is basically encouraging them to speak or act in a way that they're convinced is sinful. When you try and get them to live in a way that they are not yet convinced is okay, you are leading them to sin against the living God. You can harm the soul of your brother or sister by not welcoming them, being patient with them, loving them. And on the last day, Christ will have something to say about that. Second, notice in these verses that Paul roots his teaching in what has been written. In other words, when he wants to convince us to believe what he is saying, here is how he reasons with us. He comes back to the Bible. Do you see that in verse 11? As it is written. As it is written. Paul could simply have said, I'm an authoritative apostle, personally appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. You must believe what I say. That's not his approach. He's gentle with his readers. He's gentle with us. Paul persuades us using Scripture as his basis, quoting from Isaiah 45, 23. The point is this. Even as Paul is teaching us how to live with those with whom we disagree, he's also modeling for us. He's modeling for us how to teach gently. He's showing us that when we want to persuade our brother or sister, we need to do so pointing them to Scripture. And of course, Paul too will be patient with this church in Rome. He knows they're not going to read this letter one time through and suddenly everything's going to be perfect and all the problems of the church are going to be fixed. He knows better. It takes time for Christians to really take truth to heart and to come to grips with it. Finally, note that in these verses, Paul stresses our individuality. Our individuality. So yes, we're part of a family. Yes, we're soldiers in a common army on a common mission. But on the last day, verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Ultimately, I must stand before God and give an account of my own life. And you can't do that for me. And you can't, I can't lean on you. I can't lean on my parents' faith. I can't lean on my grandparents' faith. And I won't be able to plead the things that we did together as a church. At the end of the day, what will matter is this. Before God, I am a sinner. And Christ is a Savior. But is He my Savior? Have I been gloriously redeemed by him? Have I as an individual been brought to Christ through saving faith so that his life, death, and resurrection have been applied to my account so that he is my righteousness before God? That's an individual issue. Um, All of us in this room We love each other. I know we do. But we can't stand before God on each other's behalf. And so we ought to do what we can to help each other be ready for that day. 
That includes loving. That includes persuading each other of spiritual things. But it also includes welcoming each other and being patient with each other. Can we accept each other right where we are? Wherever that is in our spiritual walk. And be there to love and to encourage and to help. All right. We're not done, of course, with Romans 14. We still have three more sermons, okay, on this chapter and more of what Paul's going to teach us about what it looks like to, to, to work through issues when Christians disagree. But any questions that you have so far in unpacking these verses?